A written transcript of this episode is provided by Starburst. For more information, you can see the show notes. With a massive move to distributed data architecture, it's essential to have access to all of your data wherever it is. A data mesh emphasizes domain-driven data ownership, data as a product, self-service infrastructure, and federated computational governance, giving you faster time to value without needing to transport your data. Starburst allows you to achieve this distributed architecture by allowing you to run SQL queries across distributed data that connect sources, regions, and clouds. For more information on how your team can benefit from a data mesh strategy, check out our data mesh resource center on our website. Data Mesh Radio is provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It is produced and hosted by me, Scott Hurlman. I started this podcast as a place for practitioners to get useful information about Data Mesh, and we're at over 200 episodes. I've now left Data Stacks, you know, thanks for all their help in founding things, but I've left to start Data Mesh Understanding, which is also helping practitioners to get to the information needed to do Data Mesh well. We have free implementer introduction and roundtable programs in addition to the more advanced yet affordable offerings. So please do get in touch if you're looking for more information on how to do, how to approach Data Mesh. Just check datameshunderstanding.com for more info. There's also a helpful organization of past Data Mesh radio episodes there if you want to dig into specific topics rather than digging through 200 different episodes. So with that, let's hit the funky intro music and listen to what you'll hear about in this interview episode. In this episode, I interview Eric Broda, an executive consultant in the financial services space. Eric shared his learnings from aiding a large financial services firm to implement data mesh from the infancy of the project. Eric's big thesis for companies looking to be data-driven is to think of themselves as a platform for connecting supply and demand. The internal company may be the supplier, like in the financial services uh, space, if the bank is lending money directly, but more often is about being the platform to match investors to consumers looking to take out a loan. Lowering the friction between both sides of your constituencies is crucial, and getting really good at data can help there. We also discussed the typical journey he is seeing for clients, realizing data mesh might be good for them. It typically starts off as a technology discussion around a pain point that is acute but not dire. There's no need to look at something like data mesh unless something isn't working. To Eric, and and I agree, the technology is like plumbing. You expect it to work, but most businesses at the high level don't care about it as long as it works. You don't buy a house for the plumbing. Eric's big point of advice is that you shouldn't underestimate the organizational change required to do something like data mesh right. Plan for the change and also don't try to skip the necessary change. That will lead to disaster. Speaking of organizational structure, Eric firmly believes the centralization of data ownership fails Conway's law, and that's why it just doesn't work. While companies can overcome that failure of Conway's law with a lot of effort, most don't get there due to a building fatigue around trying to overcome that. 
In financial services specifically, the way Eric sees data products emerging is a direct one-to-one relationship between data producers and consumers. The data producers need funding to get the data product created and potentially the funding for continuing to keep the data product going. And the data producers slash owners cannot be forced to produce. It must be a negotiation. And for funding, Eric says, use tangible business outcomes to align on. When developing a new data product, Eric recommends to first start with expected usage patterns pretty explicitly as the one-to-one relationship model, at least in a data product's early life, needs to match the needs of the data consumers rather than trying to create it for uh, general use. You should try to focus specifically on that one customer's use and set it up to evolve. There needs to be an actual dialogue between producer and consumer, and Eric has seen data product roadmaps be pretty helpful there. We also discussed why I think CDC is a pretty bad pattern for data mesh, but Eric thinks it can be useful if you are really thoughtful in how you leverage it. This is similar to what Abhi Sivasilam said in, in his uh, call, as well as the one that uh, the interview he had on the Data Engineering Podcast around data contract. Eric has written a few posts in and around the topic linked in the show notes. Eric also stated his belief that master data management, or MDM, is essentially dead, especially in data mesh. It hasn't ever really worked, and it's not worth trying to do it with data mesh. Time will tell whether he's right on that one. So I think you'll have a a lot of interesting food for thought coming out of this one, whether it's giving you very explicit uh, guidance. I I don't know as much, but I think you'll find a lot of this quite useful. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Okay, very excited about this episode today. I've got Eric Broda here, who's an executive consultant. We're going to kind of bounce around uh, a few different topics. Eric has recently put out um, a fair number of articles on kind of how you would think about tackling certain challenges relative to data mesh and some patterns that he's he's recommending. Uh, some of which I agree with, some of which I'm, I'm I don't agree with. So we'll get into that as well. Um, you know, we, we, we called it somewhat contentious, but cordial of, uh, you know, just sharing our context and things like that, but, um, very excited for this and to kind of dig into and start from the, the, why, why would you even think about data mesh? Like what, what would cause you to think about it and, and just constantly thinking about why, instead of focusing quite so much on how, which I know technologists want a technology. But with that, Eric, if you don't mind, if you could give a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can kind of jump in from there. 
Sure. Perfect, Scott. First off, thanks for having me here. Uh, so I, I run a boutique consulting firm. Uh, my focus is kind of on three things. They're obviously interrelated. Uh, data mesh being uh, the, the one uh, that is obviously the topic of interest today, but, but in a related fashion on delivering API platforms and event management platforms. I focus almost all of my time in the financial services area, so banking, insurance, payments, uh, and as you'll see from as we start to get into the why discussion, uh, having some business knowledge and being able to communicate that uh, comes in very, very handy. So I spend a lot of my time in financial services. I have implemented a global data mesh with, with a large financial service, a global financial firm. Uh, and we, we implemented a number of the components that I have in my articles, uh, you know, change data capture, uh, event streaming backbone, uh, audit log, a bunch of things like that. Uh, so I think I have a little bit of experience around uh, not just the why, but also the how. Uh, and I'm looking forward to having a discussion around uh, both of those, Scott. So there you go. When you have your clients or your potential clients coming to you and, and talking about data mesh, um, are they coming to you and saying, we want to do data mesh, will you help us? Or are they saying we have these challenges and then you come in and you say, maybe data mesh is the right strategy or, or what that chicken and egg is kind of important for where some of the questions might come from? Yeah, sure. More often than not, I, the, the journey starts with actually the uh, technology organization uh, but uh, as you'll see, as, as we progress in the discussion, it more often than not ends uh, with a joint business and IT discussion. So the very first one, uh, usually when I get called in, is there's, this, there's a discussion around the fact that uh, I have, uh, whether it's a big data lake, data lake house, uh, big data warehouse, whatever the case may be, uh, there's some complications in actually managing the data in there to the point where uh, some of the, the data may be inconsistent, stale, and there's a, a fair amount of questioning as to the utility and value of that data. Uh, that is usually the entry point for, for where I come in. Now, as you go down uh, and have that discussion, there's a lot of technical folks that would say, you know what, we need to pick, you know, we need a new data fabric or we need a new data mesh. Um, and, and normally, uh, there's, a, there's a good, healthy discussion to be had around what are the technologies, components that you need to assemble to provide data mesh capability. But at the end of the day, it's plumbing uh, in many respects. And uh, just as a, you know, when I buy a house, uh, I assume the plumbing's behind the drywall and it just naturally works. What I'm really interested in is, is seeing what does the house look like and does it meet my needs for accommodation? So, so the technology discussion quickly morphs into, I get the plumbing, I understand the plumbing. Yes, it's, it's non-trivial to assemble some of the components, but the real question is why do we want to do this? Now, the interesting thing about the why is, is more often than not, you're going to be spending several million dollars along this journey. And in fact, you know, if you want to do a global data mesh, you're probably talking in the tens of millions of dollars. So the natural question is, why should I be spending money on this versus that? So, so we can go through a lot of the details with the, my clients around why the data problem is, is, is there. But more, again, the, the, the discussion really says, um, what is the business outcome I actually want to get? So, so there's three typical problems that uh, I see that, that come out. Um, every financial firm is trying to drive adoption of the cloud. Uh, one of the challenges is uh, it more, you know, far too often uh, usage of the cloud is uh, I have lots of Salesforce, I have lots of pr provider X, Y, Z. 
um, but they're not necessarily using their own cloud really well. So the real question there is if I can actually move some of my data onto the cloud, I can get tremendous benefits in terms of agility, speed, uh, as opposed to what I may have with my mainframe. So, so one of the, the reasons why folks want to do it is to accelerate their cloud journey. The other example that I see uh, more often than not is I have this legacy and it's kind of funny. Uh, I was talking to somebody earlier today. Uh, legacy is not uh, always mainframes, but it could be your Oracle or your MySQL or Postgres. And what they're saying is, is I need to actually figure out how I can move from that legacy environment. And, and again, whether it's the cloud or another destination or an analytical data source, how do I actually move and migrate that data uh, more effectively and efficiently to the point where I may even be able to deprecate or modernize uh, the, the old legacy environment. Um, so those are kind of two of the, 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 the really big uh, opportunities. The one that actually, though, is, is probably the one that comes much you know, really to the forefront in terms of a business case is now that I can use technology like the data mesh to simplistically, I'm simplifying right now, to move data to where I want it to be. Uh, and if I can get it on the cloud, what would I do differently? I would engage my customers differently. So again, the data mesh is the plumbing that allows me to move data to a different place, whether it's an analytical repository to do better machine learning or a better system of engagement so I can actually figure out how to engage my customers in a much more agile uh, and practical manner. So, so that's the discussion that actually it provides the rationale to spend the money that you actually want and need to implement the data mesh plumbing. So that's the typical journey that uh, I end up going through. And, and what are you finding is the thing that actually drives people to kind of, you know, say yes to the dress or whatever of actually say, okay, let's start to move forward. What are you finding are, you know, not the one or whatever, but what are some buy-in factors when you say, here is why you should start to consider data mesh or even just any kind of large uh, large scale IT project. Sure, I, yeah. Um, the 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 typical con again the starting point. Let, let's just pick one, which is uh, I have a big um, a big data instance or a a large data lake or lake house as they call it right now, and uh, it's not doing what it needs to do. The data is stale. The data is inconsistent. Whatever the case may be, but there's a a mini crisis, if you will. Uh, a problem that needs to be solved. Uh, that's usually the starting point for 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 getting uh, my clients engaged anyway. And then uh, th then the discussion really goes is is you know there, there's a bunch of things that happen. But one of the questions is why is this uh, my current environment, my lake house, my data lake, whatever you want to call it? Why is it actually not working? So so and then we come into a very practical discussion. So so I think most of the the listeners probably have heard of Conway and Conway's law. But uh, uh, the, the problem that almost, well, before I dwell into that, Conway's law effectively says that your systems and, and implicitly data will follow the, the organizational structure of your enterprise. Um, so what that really means is uh, the, the decision-making and the funding aligns to the organizational structure. So if you think about your traditional data lake, lake house, uh, again, whatever you may want to call it, the, the broad theme is centralization. Which, if you think about it, is actually contrary to Conway's law. In fact, if you try and go against Conway's law, moving data from where it naturally resides in the lines of business, if you will, or the geographic units, 
and try to centralize it, A, it can be done, but it's a heavy lift. It's a long, tough journey. Um, and more often than not, with any long, tough journey, you may get part of the way, but fatigue sets in and fatigue in terms of funding fatigue, decision making fatigue, and eventually you lose interest. And that gets to the point where, you know, people don't necessarily care enough and entropy takes over. And lo and behold, you have stale and inconsistent data. So, so the, the challenge there is um, if you're, if you're going to go against Conway's law, the, the real question is, have you got the stomach and the wherewithal to actually sustain it? Most organizations don't. So that's when we talk about the data mesh. And the brilliance of Zemex principles is the fact that it, 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 it assigns ownership directly to the folks that are, in my parlance, closest to the data. The people who literally own the data, deal with it day in, day out, become the official owners. And incumbent with becoming the owner, they have to, they come up with a roadmap and then they come up with a funding plan. Then they, as, as the owner, then they can dictate how that data is shared. Contrast that with the traditional data lakehouse uh, opportunity, or you know, to call it that, is more often than not, you have a centralized IT organization that scrambles. So there's probably some way that we can actually get some benefit out of slicing, dicing data, but they scramble and reach out to all the lines of business, the geographic units, and try and pull that data in. Okay, and put it into a different place. And then what you end up trying to do is sync, you know, you spend a ton of time trying to synchronize that uh, and, and navigate the inevitable changes in the data structures that happen in the various regions. Spend it costs a ton of money, costs a ton of time, and ends up in a frustrating experience. So the data mesh principles that uh, uh, Zagmap came up with says that you don't actually have to move that data. You should actually leave it there. And then what you do is you should actually expose that data using APIs. And in this day and age, APIs is a pretty trivial way to actually access the data. Allow the consumers to actually come to the product owners, literally have a, and I don't know if you really want to call this in an enterprise, but have a negotiation that says, I want to have data X, Y, and Z. And then there may be a discussion that has a little bit of internal pricing process. If you want data X, Y, and Z, I will commit to giving it to you. You need to fund not only the work to actually get that done, but perhaps even some of the ongoing costs, there's a negotiation that happens. And all of a sudden what happens is now we have the data owner that has yet another funding algorithm, another set of interested parties, and you have the data consumer having the data uh, on a long-term basis in a negotiated agreed service with service expectations set. The interesting thing about that is that then creates another owner of the data. So we have the primary owner, but now the consumer of that data they normally do something with it. If it's AI machine learning, they may derive some, you know, create some derived attributes, et cetera. They become a data owner and the process continues and continues. So, so the buy-in starts with, I hate to say it, but a mini crisis, uh, but a crisis that's manageable enough. And typically you're, you're in, in most of the clients I've seen, your data lake house uh, is a source of problems more than the source of benefits. It's almost always the discussion starting point. And then we morph into, like I said, a Conway's Law discussion. Uh, and, and very quickly, people realize that there's a better way to actually solve the problem. And Zamex uh, principles nailed it perfectly. Uh, but again, now the question really is, is I get the principles. How do I actually do that? And that's, you know, perhaps we can talk about that a little bit later. But that's a typical journey in the approach for buy-in. And I wanted to double click into a couple of things you said there. And it's it's funny because I, I've talked to a, a couple other people in the financial services space as well. And it typically is this, you know, direct exchange for of financial 
means in some way for data, even inside the company. And I worry about with that of, again, specific purpose data products. So how are you finding that it isn't that someone says, I want this data, you're going to produce this data for me and data mesh enables those conversations in a much easier way. And that the, the, production can actually happen versus what we've kind of done historically when there's these kind of single um, usage pattern data products. But how do you design the data products to fit that need, but also potentially fit other people's needs? Are you doing a source or producer aligned data product? And then there's a consumer aligned data product that 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 domain team also owns or, or how, how have you evolved that so that way other people can come onto the mesh and potentially use that sure the the, the there's a there's a that's a pretty complex question let me see if i can actually uh, <laughs> uh, break it into smaller parts so so first off the the traditional it approach is what i would characterize as command and control you know thou shalt you know through one shape form or another thou shalt give me the data and i'll put it to where i need to do it the, and the, the analogy may break down a bit, but uh, in financial services, the capitalist mindset actually is pretty strong. Uh, in, in other words, uh, you don't tell me what I need to do. If you want me to do something for you, happy to do it, but you know you need to help me um, fund uh, that uh, on, a, on an ongoing long-term basis. So I think that thinking is ingrained, at least in, in the clients that I've worked with in financial services. Um, so, so that's kind of the the first one is is that mindset around the fact that the owner actually is the supreme is supreme in the equation. The owner is not somebody who is forced to do something. The owner is somebody who says, if you want to do something, let's have a discussion. Uh, and, and if and if I could call it that, let's have a negotiation. And in some cases, many cases actually, there's some there's it's very common to have an internal pricing uh, algorithm that uh, allows these things to actually be funded. Um, but that comes back to the power of the owner. Uh, and that's actually the key to success. So one of the real questions is, is how do you actually empower the owner? Uh, and, and I think there's a, a few things that uh, Zamek uh, actually had said. And I'll elaborate on a bit. But obviously, the first one is, you know, you ought to have data domain. So that, that at least puts a boundary around it. But the, the phrase that she used is to treat data as a product is a very loaded term. Uh, and, and specifically, the platform is the loaded term. So in traditional IT parlance, the platform is the core infrastructure technology. If you think of the platform in the context of, say, Uber, um, there's an a, a infrastructure, absolutely, the app, if you will, and the technology behind it. But what you have is producers, okay, people who have cars, and you have consumers, people who want to get rides. Airbnb, the same thing. Airbnb has some infrastructure. We have people that want to rent houses or buildings or whatever the case may be. And you have people that want to actually uh, rent them. So uh, renters and rents, people who want to rent them. So what you end up having is there's a beautiful dynamic that says the platform is actually the plumbing that allows the interaction to take place. So from a data mesh perspective, we actually have exactly what we talked about. We have data producers, okay? Those, that's the owner who owns the data product, okay? So the data product has a foundation. That's the technical plumbing. That's the data mesh. But it has producers, the people who create the data, the, the create data creators. Then you have the data consumers, the people in the other lines of business, geographies, the centralized groups, corporate service, whatever the case may be, that consume it. 
the, the data mesh provides the way to do that safely, reliably, and in a governable way. Okay, and it allows producers to be producers and consumers to be consumers and provides the vehicle to have the dialogue that's actually necessary. And again, kudos to Zemeck. It provides the way to have that federated that negotiation and understanding where your data is and perhaps even pricing it uh, and having a roadmap for it. It provides the vehicle for the federated governance which is actually one of the most important parts with the data mesh. So again, just to reiterate, it's a combination of th three or four things, but the platform is infrastructure like an Uber, like an Airbnb, but produ data producers working with data consumers on the platform, the data mesh that makes it all safe, reliable, and consistent. That's actually how uh, all the pieces fit together from an organization and technology coming together. But if we could drill down into specifically where, where I'm trying to understand is in data mesh, you know, Jamak has talked at least for source aligned data or producer aligned data products um, that you are trying to share your business context, irrespective of the potential specific use. It's, it's sharing data in such a way that it could be used to answer many questions instead of a single question or a single set of questions. So if you have that direct producer-consumer relationship, I, I kind of am seeing this actually evolve uh, before my eyes, is that there are actually a lot more of those one-to-one -one relationships of producer and consumer. And so you create that, that data product maybe for that consumer, and then you start to create what you would actually feed into that from a data product that would feed, that could answer multiple questions that also feeds into that specific one. And that that's the evolution or that it starts answering a specific question and that you add more and more context around it. You add more to the data sets, right? Like it's not just that it's a single table. It may be for that initial consumer, but like, how have you seen that or, or is that something that that didn't come up nearly as much in, in what you've worked on? Yeah, it's come up actually quite often, but uh, the, the answer may be not the, the one that everybody's expecting. But but my, my, my view is this is the owner is supreme. And uh, if the owner wishes to uh, allow their data consumption patterns to grow organically, that's OK. OK. Presumably, there's a funding algorithm uh, allowed to do it. But here's here's the thing that I found people try and do uh, before they should actually be doing it. You have to actually understand your data usage patterns very, very well before you can actually harmonize them and consolidate or aggregate them. Far too often, what people do is before you actually get started, they want to have a big requirements dialogue. They want to have a big design dialogue. And they want to actually understand all the use cases before uh, the you know have that have the the discussion around the APIs and the, is it a, a one to one or is it can we come up with some consistent and consolidated APIs? My answer to that is more you know frequently you don't know the answer to that, but the person who's best equipped to actually address it is the actual data owner. And what I found is is as you highlighted the first few uh, APIs, the consumption patterns are really one offs one-to-one, point-to-point, to, for lack of a better word. But what we find as the, the data product owner matures, what they see is natural patterns in consumption. And they are the ones that go and say, here's how we want it to evolve. 
And to be honest with you, some of that may mean breaking contracts, but, but you want to be very, very, very careful when you do that. But even, you know, was it three, four years ago, even Google changed their Google Maps API and forced a ton of people to actually change. So even the folks that are actually spectacular at this, and Google is spectacular at this, even they have to go through the difficult discussion around, hey, uh, things evolve and I need you, my consumers, to actually participate in evolving together. Um, so so, so that, that effectively is how I see the stuff working. It is not a uh, planning up front, but allowing a little bit of organic growth to actually occur in the hands of the product owner. That, that evolution aspect is, is something that I've been kind of talking to people about is when you go to, when consumers get in the room with producers, they're used to things happening uh, in most organizations, things happening on the producer side that breaks their consumption, right? And so what they say, what they try to, to start with is, oh, now we have the power we're going to lock you into saying that you're not going to break our consumption. And it's like, no, 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 that's a terrible, um, you're, you're just putting a burden on them and you're putting responsibility on them instead of partnership. If you evolve to that partnership aspect of back and forth communication and that, no, I, as a producer, yes, I may break what we're, we're talking about, but you're going to know about it ahead of time. We're going to have a discussion about it ahead of time. We're going to work together to do a versioning ahead of time. And so that there's that empathy angle of it's not, I, I spew out data. You get to use it, whether you, you can use it if you so choose, but I'm going to do what I want versus, hey, we're in this together. We're a team. Absolutely. And in fact, I think the the one of the most important, there's a lot of criteria, but to pick a data owner, uh, you it's it's not just somebody who's technically strong, but somebody that uh, can engender trust. And what you're actually highlighting is you have to have a trusted relationship. Producers and consumers have to trust trust each other. They have to be empathetic to the change, the the, the inevitable changes that do occur in the business. Uh, and that dialogue is is actually a thing that needs to take place. The problem that you're highlighting is is for the organizations that have, you know, you know, now that I'm consuming the data and I'm funding what you're doing, even if it's internal pricing, uh, I have the power is exactly the wrong dynamic to actually uh, take place. And in fact, as an owner, I would say, thank you very much. But, you know, this is this is what we're going to try and do. And I'm happy to work with you and negotiate. But there's no one way street here. This is a two way street. And we have to trust each other to actually do the right thing. Now, there's a bunch of vehicles you can actually put in place to actually engender that trust. So for example, uh, a data owner can publish, a data product owner can publish a roadmap, okay? So uh, it's the same thing if, you, if you're dealing with APIs. I, I have a, uh, I, you know, I've worked with, uh, I consume Stripe uh, and I love their APIs. Uh, but the wonderful thing about Stripe, just to use an example, they're not a data, I don't know if they use data mesh, but where I'm going with it is they have an absolutely spectacular process by which they engage their consumers, the people who use Stripe with, with the fact that things are changing. They have a published release map. They have a published roadmap. They seek feedback and they actually change it before they publish it. Now, is, is every internal IT organization that mature? No, they're, they're probably not, but they're not at the other end of the continuum where I, you know, the dialogue is I have all the power and you'll, you'll succumb to my wishes either. I think it takes a little bit of maturity, 
Um, but where I've seen it uh, is, is given a little bit of time and with the right leader, uh, these things really can work. And once they work, it's like a, I mean, success is, is the, you know, success engenders success. Once you get it done right, the, 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 the notion of platforms actually becomes um, the way to deliver services, which means for data mesh, you get one data product working with a really good owner and a good co producer consumption interaction model. Um, you're going to have a bunch of other data products coming to bear very, very quickly. Um, so that's that's the dynamic that actually wins the day. It's all about trust. And, and you you talked about in this that there in financial services that there is kind of this model historically, but in in a lot of other spaces there isn't of being able to go to a producer and be like, I'm going to fund this. Have you found that there's much uh, pushback or, or because, I mean, this is a problem that's pretty commonplace in, in data mesh of going to those producers and getting them to care. So like um, if it's, if it's that there's already mechanisms for them that are much more mature in the financial services industry, great for the financial services industry and, and, you know, kind of, uh, too bad, so sad for for everybody else. But is there is there something where you think beyond that, where there isn't that that internal negotiation, internal pricing algorithm that that's yeah. worked? Yeah, it, it, I, I call it euphemistically an internal pricing algorithm. But almost every organization does it today. We call it funding projects. Um, the the challenge and the difference here is uh, more you know in the past to use that term. Uh, well, we had a central IT, corporate shared service, whatever the case may be, saying, I want to go and centralize all this stuff and create this, this beautiful intergalactic data warehouse. And that's the thing that doesn't work. Okay. But if somebody were to say to a data owner, a uh, data product owner to say, you know what, I can, if I can introduce this you know, new natural language processing capability by using the data mesh to create this new uh, analytical data source, and that's going to drive X amount of revenue. Okay. That is a tangible business outcome. And if you can use that tangible business outcome to fund, if you will, the project. So project funding is, I mean, IT does it every single day. But if you can use, you know, call it a traditional project funding model, but have the funding aligned to the, the product owner and, and, and use that to have that trust-based discussion, that's actually the way to get it. So, so come and to answer your question directly you have to move out of the plumbing and you have to get to the business outcome. And once you have the business outcome, you know, who cares, you, you know, the person who gets the revenue, the PL, they're the person that cares. And they're the one, if I can deliver this is usually a 10 X multiplier and delivering the outcome that they want with the cost. They're the person that will be happy to fund the thing um, uh, using normal project uh, funding mechanism, but you can't do it without aligning to a business outcome, centralized it, the big, you know, data lake does not have that, um, that business outcome uh, that uh, other mechanisms would naturally do. Yeah. And there's somewhat in, in certain organizations, there's a chicken and egg problem of they need the data to be able to figure out what the business outcome would be. So, but I think that's where what Jmac has talked about and, and others is that there, there just needs to be more maturity before you're ready for something like this, that if you're not mature enough to be able to figure out what you think a business outcome could be, um, you're not in a place to start trying to decentralize. You need to at least get your, 
your um, your ducks in a row kind of thing to to really start approaching something like this. So it's it's not that you've got a mini crisis; it's that you've got a a mess on your hands. <laughs> yeah, um, I, 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 at the end of the day, I think you have to, if you can align to the business outcome, and the further away you are from that, the less likelihood of actually achieving success. Um, so so that again. The, the chicken and egg problem, I think, uh, you know, can occur. And I can definitely understand why Zemak uh, and others, for that matter, she's not alone, saying you got to kind of do, I think what Wayne Eckerson uh, in a great article on LinkedIn said, you you got to do it in a piecemeal fashion. Um, absolutely agree. But here's what I would say is you have to get started. Okay. And you don't need to, to understand everything before you can actually create your first data product. Okay, but the the most important part is like in any, as they say, euphemistically, in any long journey, the first step is the the most important. Um, you have to create the data product so that you can actually test and learn and understand what works and what doesn't. That is not that difficult. What it takes, literally, is one material and useful business outcome, it tied to an identifiable piece of sec, set of data that you can actually point to an owner. And then you can empower that person. Now, here's how it actually works very well, is you don't have to have an external business unit coming up with an opportunity and funding it off to another one. Almost every, you know, every geograph geography within financial services has its own P&L. So, so if you're looking at a big bank, they have re, you know, regional P&Ls, do it in the region. And if, it, if the region's too big, do it with the executive that has a problem to solve and owns the data and start. And like I said, there's nothing that breeds success than success. Get started, okay? As Wayne Eckerson said, do it piecemeal, but you have to get started and test and learn. Now, the interesting thing that, that I've done with my clients is in parallel to this is we start this, this notion of platform thinking. And that's the note that, again, the, applying the Uber mechanics or the Airbnb mechanics, the notion of producers and consumers sitting on a safe, reliable infrastructure that dialogue happens in parallel. And the reason you, you want to have that, because the inevitable discussion around the platform uh, thing is who are your producers, who are your consumers, and most importantly, who owns the technology and the data, which usually you know, enforces the, the notion of the, you know, first off, it identifies the owner and the notions in it uh, provides the, the power and the accountability for the owner. So, so you don't have to think big to actually get started. Uh, you can think localized. Uh, in fact, I've seen most things start actually within an individual geography. In fact, within a business unit, within an uh, individual geography. But the key is to get started. Uh, and if you can, in parallel, start the platform thinking. Start the notion of producers, consumers, the negotiation, the platform, and the trust that actually has to happen. That is all within uh, reason for a good IT leader to actually execute. Yeah, I, I think it, where a lot of people are getting blocked is just that getting started of how big of a bite do I have to, to take? And, and people are thinking that it's, you know, the biggest bite of all time. It's like, no, you, you can you can get moving on this stuff without doing that. So um, so I, you did uh, mention something on I, I do want to get to uh, what we talked about as well from a CDC standpoint and how that's a challenge for a lot of people, but you did mention governance and governance is one thing I haven't drilled down into a lot just because it's such a, uh, one, I, I, 
I hate governance as a topic because it shouldn't be one topic. It is like seven to 10 subtopics that are at most loosely uh, related to each other. But um, for financial services, there's obviously high, high regulation. There's all sorts of data sovereignty issues. There's all sorts of, of additional controls and things like that. So how have you looked at governance and, and what do you think are some good through lines that people might take for outside of financial services, right? That, that they don't have to be quite as concerned maybe about certain aspects, but. Yeah, the, the, you highlighted, so, so governance is kind of a uh, part of what I do, I suppose, in financial services. As you highlight, it's a regulated industry. Give you a real simple example that comes uh, over time and time again is I'm building my AI models. Okay. And, and the interesting thing about, I think this is now being applied to other industries, definitely in health, uh, probably in government, maybe in others. But in financial services, if I have any model that either uh, impacts customers in a material way, lending, for example, um, or I impact the the risk position of the organization, that goes that that by definition in in almost all in the EU, the UK, uh, US, Canada, Australia, they're all subject to regulatory scrutiny. The regulators come and say, you know, they want three things: <clears throat> reproducibility. Tell me you can actually do the result again, giving the same, given the same data. And, and that's sometimes harder than people think. With reproducibility, traceability, show me the path that the data came to. Because if you can't show me the path from the source to the, the, to the engineered data that used to train the model, you can't actually deliver reproducibility. And then obviously you have to define very uh, verifiability. So that's a very common problem. In fact, the data mesh is a way to actually solve some of that problem by um, taking governance to heart and actually embedding governance into the process. So, so like you, um, most organizations, when we talk about governance, it's kind of like a talk to the hand type dialogue. Um, it's a, it's a, a stop and let me think about it. And we'll have a bunch of meetings and we'll opine on things. and Maybe we'll give you a decision. That's old style governance to use that term. Governance today, especially with the data mesh, is if you actually put the tools in place and the instrumentation, you can actually have all of the raw data you need to actually govern. So what, now to answer your question, what does governance actually mean? I think it means a, a few really simple things. And this is like you said, a, you could have a, 10, a series of 10 uh, podcasts on this. But the way I look at data, uh, governance, it is really you know two things. One is, do I understand where my data is? Okay. Do I understand who owns it? And do I understand what it actually looks like? So three things, my apologies. And if you can actually do that, you can do a bunch of things. Oh, and the last thing I should have mentioned, four things. How does it change over, you know, over, over time? So uh, the, the data mesh, at least based on some of the, the architecture and patterns that I've highlighted, um, allows you to actually capture all of the changes. Okay. It lets you, through a catalog, look at all of the schemas. Okay. Um, and with those two things, and uh, with the catalog, it under, you can understand where your data actually resides. You can actually automate maybe the wrong word, but you can dramatically simplify governance to the point where it's it's actually embedded in the process. So if I was a, now, I'll give you an example. It's very common where you have in financial service, somebody wants to take a look at the model, wants to look at the, the reproducibility. They actually want to see, you know, the, the where that they want to actually see the structure of the data. They want to see how it changed. They want to see the data lineage. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually have a very simple 
facade, a search, find an inventory, a catalog that actually allows me to search for a data element, understand its structure, maybe even look at some sample data, okay, and actually understand its lineage. Well, the data mesh with the capability that I, I have in some of my articles, but I'll talk about here briefly, is with uh, change data capture, I can actually, and we can debate the, the, the merits and the challenges. There definitely are some, some uh, lessons learned in that. But ultimately, change data capture can unobtrusively capture changes in the data. And if you think about it, data lineage is the sum of the changes of, in that data. And with some smart microservice and a few algorithms, you can actually bind those changes together to actually demonstrate the lineage of data uh, of a data element. Now, it's not perfect but it is orders of magnitude better than what we have today. So now if I have the, the enterprise data product catalog is what I call it, has reference to all of the, the, the metadata that exists in the product data products. Now I actually, as a, as a governance professional, I can say, let me find the data elements. Let me find the customer ID element. I can search, find that. I can see the specification and the schema for that because again, the catalog is connected to the schema registry. I can now look at the lineage because it's connected to the, the, the immutable change audit log fed through uh, change data capture and, and some intelligent ag uh, aggregation capability. I can actually, as a governance professional, answer the question, which is where is my data? What does it look like and what changed? So I'm not saying by the way, this is trivial and it's not simple to implement, but the capabilities are here and make no mistake about it. You can do it one way or another, but you will have to do it. If you are moving, especially with AI machine learning where it's going, uh, you will not be able to get something in production in the future unless you actually have reproducibility, traceability and verifiability because AI machine learning is having a tangible and material impact on people's lives today and it will get even stronger. This is a train that's coming down the pipe, down the tracks. You got to you got to address it. And the data mesh provides not a perfect set of tools, but a better set of tools and approach than anything that's out there today. Well, and those four points that you talked about were all kind of, again, the why. Right. I, I think with data mesh, so many people get lost way too deep in the how. And it's like. I, I wish there were more people that were a little bit more vulnerable about what challenges they're facing when it comes to data mesh, because um, it's not just that, you know, oh, everybody else has this solved because nobody's talking about it. It's like nobody's talking about it because they don't want to be the one that says, I don't get it. And yet, you know, 90% of the class is like, I don't get this point either. Like, I, I haven't figured out how to do this right. And so, like, then that 10% that can, can step forward and not be like, oh, here's the way, but it's like, here's how we did it. And here's, here's the, the positives and the negatives. Everything has those positive and negative. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of funny you mentioned that because it, it is very much like, you know, back in the university days. Um, but but here, here's, here's the thing is, is and kudos, like I, I love the podcast. I love the, the Slack, chant, the Slack uh, community that you've uh, grown. Uh, it's fantastic. We have five, I think it's almost 6,000 professionals now, but here, here's, and I see, you know, data mesh on LinkedIn, but here's the thing is you can almost tell where the challenges actually are. So, so, you know, I respond quite frequently to even Twitter, to LinkedIn, and, the, and sometimes to the Slack channels where they have the questions. But as an example of something that comes up time and time again is what about master data management? How does that fit into the puzzle? And can data mesh actually address it? That's just an example of of one solution that we can actually offer. Uh, my personal view is old style MDM centralization is dead, it should be dead, buried, it's a corpse. 
put it away. Um, and there's better ways to actually affect the same outcome. But that's just an example. There's many things if you if you read between the lines where folks are having their problems. But you are correct. Uh, it would be helpful to have a more fulsome dialogue around you know the whys and, uh, and and the practical outcomes we want to achieve. Yeah, and that that MDM side is uh, something where Jamak has talked about it in some of her. Um, presentations and stuff. And, and it is, it's exactly what you, you said of, I think it's dead as well, because it doesn't have the ROI that people think it does. Right. And so it's like, wh- again, why do it if it doesn't have the ROI, if you can get what you're trying to achieve without doing that same burdensome task, why do the burdensome task unless, you know, it, it, it's just, it's again, kind of ca- cargo cult type culture of like, this is the way we've done it. So this is what we should do. And it's like, but what got you, what, what didn't even get you here isn't going to get you there. But you know, the whole, what got you here won't get you there. It didn't even get you here. <laughs> it, it hasn't been working for however long we've been trying to do it. Yeah. I, I personally never actually seen a successful MDM master data management implementation. Uh, and, and, and it comes back to the things we mentioned at the start of the discussion is if you want to go against Conway's law, Good luck to you, but you know you're you're trying to. It's not even swimming upstream. You're trying to cl- swim up a, a waterfall, uh, and uh, that's not for the faint of heart. And I wish you luck uh, if you're going to try it. But like like you said, there's better solutions. You know, the combination of uh, a data product catalog, which has you know it's a fa- literally a facade on top of references to schemas, data lineage, etc. Uh, you can actually provide a way to get the same outcome of MDM, which is literally understand where my master data is and who owns it and what does it look like through data mesh uh, technology and capabilities. And that's the irony of this is that Zamek has highlighted some things uh, that are are so uh, subtle in some cases that I don't don't think people actually understand the simplicity behind some of it. Um, uh, And maybe that's part of what you and me need to do is is we need to continue to address that the way we are. And, and that's, I mean, a lot of people have said that when they've come from a microservices world to data, they go, why is data behaving like this? This doesn't make any sense. We've solved a lot of these challenges, so we just need to apply it, which is kind of what data mesh is. But I, I did want to double click into um, CDC and, and give a little bit about the context of what you you said something, and, and I I, if I tried to grab your phrasing again, I couldn't remember it for the slightest bit, but you said something about like aggregating the re-aggregating the information from CDC. And this is the challenge that I'm, I'm finding, by the way, if people aren't familiar, CDC is changed data capture. So it's, you know, something happened in the database or the system of record and you change, you capture that that change occurred and you emit something to an event streaming or, or something like that. And so um, with CDC, what it is exposing is a change in the operational systems schema. It is not emitting a change relative to something happened in the real world and, and what that, what the data would care about. And so what, you know, I, I talked to, um, somebody in that their episode is, uh, Andrew Jones at Go Cardless, and his episode is coming out on Friday. Um, so he talked about 
completely ripping and replacing CDC and just using data contracts. Um, and they're not specifically doing data mesh, but they kind of are <laughs> when you look at a lot of it. But um, that change data capture, you know, obviously Vasylum talked about this um, on his data engineering podcast episode, uh, not on the data mesh radio episode he did, but there's additional things that you need to do to make these changes useful for actually data. Because again, otherwise you're exposing data on the inside as if it were data on the outside, right? CDC relative to what changed in an operational platform is specifically a change in data on the inside. So how do we move towards it being data on the outside? And you talked about this immutable audit log. And I I like that approach because it does provide the what happened, not, and it might be what was, what did the data look like at this time? And what did the data look like at this time? And do you create a new row? Do you do append only? Do you do like all these different things? I I don't know. But um, that, I think we need that immutable, which means doesn't change for people who aren't familiar, but immutable audit log is way better than CDC. And one thing that you kind of talked about was combining CDC and the immutable audit log. But I think if you're just trying to leverage CDC, it's going to cause way more problems than it helps. So sorry, lots of context to dump, but that's kind of the the conversation or the yeah. question of, of what I'm seeing. Yeah. yeah so, so first off, you know, CDC uh, unvarnished is, uh, it is a huge data pipe. Uh, it's like drinking from the fire hose. Uh, and, and for those that are, aren't too familiar with CDC, change data capture says, if I update a, a, um, uh, an element in a table, uh, that gets put into uh, a database commit log and CDC after the transaction's finished, picks up the, the, the change in that log and then it communicates it. So if you use something like Debezium or Precisely Connect uh, or, or other uh, CDC vendors, what they end up doing is they put it onto a Kafka, uh, Confluent Kafka or otherwise, uh, an event streaming backbone. So, so now if you consume that raw, uh, you know, first off, you're going to be drinking from the fire hose. Second of all, there's a lot of data in there. It's, you know, 80% metadata. This is what the data looked like before. This is what it looked like after. There's a ton of extra stuff in there. To consume that on its own is not that terribly useful. I don't know exactly what you'd necessarily do with it. And to put it in a log on its, in its unvarnished state is not terribly useful either. In fact, if I just, that, and that's the difference between the, my immutable uh, audit log than you know what you get with event sourcing or just regular Kafka. Uh, with Kafka, if you put something on the the uh, on a topic, uh, it can persist that literally forever. But the challenge you have is you have a tr- it's like I said, it's a fire hose and it's a complicated set of of, of data to actually manage. Um, my proposition says you should have something listening for those change events. Okay. And then what you want to do is you want to assemble them. So that's, I have an aggregate, I call it an aggregation microservice. And this is how we've implemented it in in the past with my clients is we have something that actually dramatically simplifies that and answer it. And it, it can be as simple as answering a few things. This is what the data element was. This is what it, this is a data element name. This is what it was before. This is what it is now. This is who changed it. This is when it was changed and how it was changed. That's simple. Now, that's one element of what goes into the change audit log. If you actually think about that now, and I 
I'll trivialize it here. If I group on the data element name, I can actually see how it went from A to A prime, and A prime to A double prime, A double prime to A triple prime. I can actually see how it changed. Now, now CDC actually becomes not just a, a, a low-level plumbing thing, but it actually provides a way to actually understand, again, what happened to the data, who did it, effectively data lineage. Um, which is probably one of the most important things, especially with the, as I mentioned, with the predominance of AI machine learning, one of the most important things you actually got to figure out. Well, and, and you can think about it as versioning of that specific piece of data rather than the whole data product itself. But what I would say is, is this aggregation microservice, again, is it about what changed in using the applications schema or is it the data model the the business the domains data model is this what you're using to kind of reconnect those or because again if if we're just exposing changes in some way relative to the application model the application model and the data model unless you're doing domains or, or data centric application development which just had an episode on that as well that will have come out um, a little before this and so I, I don't think that that's, you know, that it's that easy to just say, just do this. But like, I do think that there's, there's something there around, you know, that's what obviously the asylum is also doing. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. You, you got to get pretty deep in the weeds to have this type of discussion. So I do appreciate it. So, so, so you're correct. Absolutely. What I've been talking about is, you know, what is the state of the application data? Okay. What is this? What's changed in the customer ID or the customer name? The other piece that I didn't highlight, but is is you know it depends a little bit I think on the product CDC product you use, or the database actually. But but you can even track the schema changes, which is if I understand correctly what you're talking about. So how did the customer uh, record structure? the table structure actually change? And can I actually keep track of that in terms of a schema? The answer is yes, with some products. It depends on how they do their updates. And if they, I think Postgres, for example, does it this way. Um, but if you make a change in the Postgres data structure, the table structure, that actually goes through the commit log. And if you're industrious enough, you can collect that. You put a listener on it, you can collect that. And then use CDC, again, the same mechanism mentioned, to actually truck Tra track your data schema changes in your tables. Um, that's one, definitely something I have seen. The where, where I see more is is and it's actually quite commonplace. If you look at like Confluent or Kafka, they have the schema registry. And if you use the schema registry to define your events that go onto your topics, um, they have a complete mechanism that allows you to actually track the changes in the event structure. And that's what the schema registry actually does. So the practice is actually common. It's just not applied uh, the, to databases typically. But what you've you've mentioned, actually, uh, I, I have explored that. I haven't seen a client of mine actually do it, but I have explored it. And it's a pretty, pretty powerful thing if you actually think about it. But uh, you're the first person, believe it or not, that I've had this dialogue with outside of a few key uh, deep technical folks at a client. <laughs> it, it, it's, I mean... I'm here parroting what, what I'm hearing from others. But again, it, it is that like for data consumers, they don't care how the application changed. They don't care how that or how the application storage, whatever was stored in the application in the way that the application 
reads it and understands it. They don't care about that. They care about how the data changed relative to what data they care about and, and how it, it and that's yeah and, and to answer that question um the 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 if you're using apis as jamak highlights uh apis are the primary vehicle to to access the data product um apis have been around for a long time if you use open api specifications um, which you know effectively are supersets of the json schema uh, you have versioning baked in okay they have a complete uh, you can use semantic versioning uh, connotation, but it allows you to manage the versions of your contracts in a very concise, clear way. And if you couple that with a, a portal, I call it the data product catalog, which shows the schemas of your APIs, all of a sudden you can actually demonstrate the versions, uh, the contract and the changes in the contract so that your consumers uh, can actually, you know, if they need to, they can go with version one and do like an AB con conversion to go to version two in a graceful fashion whenever it's appropriate. But the API mechanism that uh, Jamak called out is fundamental to actually addressing on the consumer side, uh, managing the change in the contracts and structures, fundamental. Yeah, there, there's there's a, a much further deep dive we could talk about on that if you if you want to come back about the uh, the versioning and the data contracts and stuff. I've been doing uh, a lot of work on on trying to figure out how we do that right. But um, so we we are coming up on time here. But um, is there anything that we didn't cover that you think people should know? Whether that's kind of getting started or driving buy in or um, you know uh, CDC related or anything like that. No, I, I think that this covered uh, just about everything that I think is pertinent. The, the only comment I would suggest is, again, is, is, is data mesh at one level is a technology. We've talked about the why. Um, don't underestimate the organizational change and that whole notion of the product, uh, the platform, uh, and the producer-consumer model as a vehicle to actually uh, accelerate your data mesh journey. Uh, we touched on that, but if there's one piece of advice that I would give to the listeners, um, that's something that you want to think about now uh, because it will be probably the vehicle to your success. Yeah. Te technologists want a technology. They want to dig into it. Um, well, this has been so great, Eric. Thank you so much for your time today. And uh, where can people find you if they want to get in touch? I'll drop the link to your medium in the in the show notes as well, but like LinkedIn yeah. or Twitter or yeah, uh, I'm on Twitter, uh, although I primarily do most of my commentary and I pay attention to LinkedIn. So uh, Eric Broda. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll drop it in the show notes just so people can easily get there. Yeah, and Medium, I'm, uh, uh, as some folks say, a prolific author, I suppose. But uh, I got uh, a bunch of things that actually address some of the things we've talked about and an upcoming series of articles on the why. Uh, why do you want to do this and where can you find uh, business value applying data mesh as a plumbing capability? How do you actually elevate it to deliver the business outcomes? So there's a series of seven articles that are coming out uh, in the next uh, 14 weeks, give or take. Uh, but Medium is the primary way to, to see where my head's at. But me, uh, LinkedIn is the way to reach out to me. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much, Eric. This has been great. And thank you, everyone, for listening. I'd like to thank my guest today, Eric Broda, who's an executive consultant in the financial services space. As always, you can find his contact information in the show notes. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking 
into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started. So give them a shout for streaming and real time AI needs. But I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one off or a month to month basis. You know, read kind of throw it on the credit card. Don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one on one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around your topics of interest. You know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music. Mm-hmm.